In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have a super special guest here with me. Pooja, how are you? I am very well, given the times that we're in. Happy, healthy, going on. Thanks, Pam. Amen. It's so awesome to have you here. Your energy radiates and like you're just such a positive and fun person. And I just can't wait to get into your story. And so for those of you listening, Pooja is tuning in from India, which I think is the coolest thing ever. And I just can't (laughs) wait to hear her story. And she's up to so many incredible things in the world. But I first always start off with an extremely loaded question, but it's Mm. my favorite. Pooja, what inspired you on your journey to where you are today? Mm, always starting with the heaviest ones I want to say that I think growing up my parents brought my sister and up with the kind of value system that resembled this you have a problem with something oh okay good to know go ahead fix it it was always that growing up with that in a world that we live in right now rampant with inequities and legacies of conflict in multiple domains there was always this pull of ah that bothers me this bothers me the other thing bothers me and it was always about how do I do something about it and I just think growing up with that value system really inspired me to constantly evolve and go ahead and do something about it problem solving through and through and children came along as I became a teacher and that just became my biggest motivation and quite the vision because they are truly the key to a better future. Amen. I love that. So like question for you, like what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, a whole bunch of things. Let's let's go to sixth grade. I think that's my earliest memory where I wanted to be an astronaut. Why? I have no idea. I think I, I, I learned how to draw a pair of binoculars and I'm like, oh, that's what astronauts would need. So I want to be an astronaut. That aside, I, I've always wanted to be a dancer. I would say that like my mom would joke that I started twerking before I started walking on in my little like huggies pampers that I was always in I've always been a dancer it's just been my default state to move in this music with this music in my head so the astronaut thing went by South Asian so by default I like to identify myself as a nerd so math and science came easy engineering was the conventional option so did that was very much into physics was very much into English literature too so basically I wanted to be like a bunch of things but I never thought I would be an educator or sort of devote my life to kids that was just not on the table wanted to be everything else but that so that's quite the interesting twist. I love that. I love a whole slew of like different things that you wanted to I be from very creative in each and every single one of them. <laughs> yeah. So what led you on your teaching journey? Like what inspired you to go, to go down that route? 
So I am a mechanical engineer by my first qualification and didn't want to do that. It was great. Physics and math are wonderful, beautiful to me, but I wanted to pursue dancing and I was got a scholarship to Broadway, was going to pursue that in 2014 when I graduated. And this was my last semester in college and I was all ready to go and dance for the rest of my life. That was the same year when I was invited as a field expert for a camp, sort of like a counselor. The camp was for 200 orphan kids hosted by my university. So that was my first ever interaction with kids. We were just dancing away. It was just like a dance workshop day in and day out for an entire week. And in one of those interactions while dancing, a child in front of me goes through a panic attack and she sort of, sort of blacks out. So I sort of like take care of her and I, you know, take her aside and I'm talking to her. And she then confides in me that because she was moving with her body and expressing, which is dancing, in front of her classmates who are also boys, and she's a nine-year-old, I want to remind us all, because of that, she got reminded of the time that she was sexually assaulted as a child. And that was a big blockade for her. And at that point, I had no idea what to do with that information or what to do with this child. Of course, I mean, being women, we're not new to such stories. Most of those are our own experiences. But to have a nine-year-old sort of tell you, looking up to you was a lot. And what I had done at the top of my head was I used dance for that day to sort of talk about gender and stereotypes and the inequities that exist, which in the Indian context is not a difficult thing at all. So it was as simple as, oh, you guys, what song should we dance to next? And they'd all say one particular item number from Bollywood. And I'm like, okay, great, great song. Let's talk about the lyrics. And by virtue of it being an item song, all these lyrics objectify women. So when you dissect those lyrics, and which is the case in largely in the music industry too, I feel. And when you dissect it, and when you ask the kids, hey, so is this right? And they're like, no, that doesn't sound right. We shouldn't be talking about women like that. So throughout the week for this particular girl to see how her boy classmates were sort of like empathizing and saying the right things was very transformative for her. And she she found safety and comfort in that space. And over the week that we worked together, and by the end of it, she was a judge, the second best dancer. She like bloomed as a personality. And for me, that was, was just a calling. Like all it took was a little bit of extra time, a little bit of conscious, intentional effort. And that's like a lifelong sustainable change for this one person. And then I was like, that's it. That's what it is. I remember calling my dad and I was like, hey, so dad, uh, remember the time that I said I don't want to be an engineer, I want to be a dancer? And my dad's like, oh, no. Did you come up with something else? I'm like, yeah, I don't want to be a dancer. I want to be a teacher. He's like, we're backing you. Like, we support you. We trust you. And that was it. And I uh, went on to do a second bachelor's in teaching and just uh, everything snowballed from there. That's amazing. Oh my God. I love that story. I love that story. And just yeah. with a little bit of help, she was able to understand, you know, like her traumas mm-hmm. and where that really came from. And, you know, but I feel like you just have like that nurturing energy though, too, which like radiates. It's like very motherly and like very cute. And like, just yeah, like, I get it from my mama. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm like, so who was a big influence and inspiration in your life? Oh, Yeah, well, mother, like hands down. I'm not very religious or anything, but I often say that I don't believe in a God, but I believe in you, mom. That's usually to get something out of her, but I (laughs) I do mean it too. I think mom's just been a huge influence. I think growing up, 
there were several instances other than she's just like this this personality who is the epitome of selflessness and just unconditional love that's always been there she's a dental surgeon i've seen her work 16 to 17 hours a day while i was growing up as a child and there was always this tug of war between work and her patience and her very critical work and also a crying helpless child with all my needs and wants and i've seen her balance the whole thing and i've also just seen how she's the most empathetic person in any single room she walks into sometimes even you know not by choice sometimes maybe she does not want to feel as much but she still ends up absorbing what's in the air and i think that is one thing that genetically sort of transpired into me mm. which i'm very grateful for but other than that yeah i remember this very this one incident well two things that which have been like offerings from her to me one is i remember asking her hey why are you not religious i mean typically my family is supposed to be a hindu practicing family and i was like why are you not like the other women lighting lamps or like worshiping the idols at home and stuff like that why are you always working and i remember she telling me that oh so my religion is serving people for me work is indeed worship and and that's what i do that's how i pray and that's become that that was such a huge moment for me and i was like yeah that makes sense it is in work that i see a higher being and in this particular you know even the service industry that's just there and the other time was the only one time she actually remembered my birthday was my yeah my ninth year birthday and as a gift she gifted me uh, eliana h porter's book called polyana I don't know if you're familiar with the book it's about this young girl who is who's taught to play the glad game by her parents just finding reasons to be glad in the thick of adversity and uh, I think the starting story of that which I really want to share is so Pollyanna is from a really poor family ailing parents and every christmas she would wait for the donations uh, the church would spare for these kids and one year she really prayed for shoes and what she got was a pair of crutches and she was really upset and her parents were like okay well tell me one that should be one way where you can actually be glad about this and she's like yeah i guess i can be glad that i don't have to use them and they're like yeah there you go and that was about playing the glad game which i know hyperpositivity has its own consequences but in a lot of ways that really helped me find silver linings wherever i found myself mom's a superhero mom's a superior that's amazing that's amazing so like cuz i know you're up to so much now these days so going from getting a bachelor's in education so walk me mm-hmm. through how your journey was after that okay it's a it's a beautiful story that dovetails into each other element so so 2014 i graduate engineering 2015 i graduate with my bachelor's in education and i'm a teacher now i teach physics and math uh, for 9 10 11 12 grades and that's that that's also the year when the syrian war and the refugee crisis caught international attention ever since alan kurdi was washed ashore the little boy that very horrific image and a bunch of reports that came one after the other and for me i think in my time in the time that i've known that was the largest humanitarian crisis and the most televised one i had never up until that point seen 
that many reports, that many Facebook lives about bombs being dropped into civilian neighborhoods and stuff like that. And I think international media also really stepped up. I think it was that time of rampant digital, you know, transparency in a lot of ways. And to me, it just seemed like you're watching this horrific series of events and you can sort of switch it off and just go on about your life order the pizza you want for dinner, have fun with friends, and that's it. And that sort of, the dichotomy of that really bothered me a lot. And I just, again, it's that value system kicking in. I have a problem with it. I better do something about it. Mm-hmm. At the time, I'm 23, broke, non-influential, had no idea how the world works at large. Mm-hmm. And there's no knowledge of charity or philanthropy or social work really because in India those are not part of our culture or our lifestyle it's a developing country with its own problems so I really struggled as in what do I do but I really wanted to do something because I think another part was that really hit me was that more than half of the victims of the Syrian refugee crisis were children and that was really shocking so I remembered how my students at school Although they would fare so badly in their physics and math papers, because those are those dreadful subjects they all hate, they would really look forward to the little post-it notes that I would stick on their thesis or or project presentations, etc. And that would just have like the one good thing that I saw them do or the one beautiful artwork that they did two weeks back or something. And those meant so much to them. And I was like, okay, so so that should work. And I remember growing up, letters meant everything to me. Mom and dad would go to work. We would often, like my sister and I would wake up to like a letter on the dining table with what to eat, what to do, and that they love us and that they miss us and all of that. So I'm a big fan of letters. So old school, I can't even tell you. I think I'm born in the wrong century. So I was just like, okay, I'm going to send a bunch of refugee children letters. And the idea was to make them smile. Because up until that point, I did not see any visual of a happy child, of a normal child, because children deserve to be happy. They deserve to learn. They deserve safety, all of that. So I was like, okay, I really want to change that narrative. And the thought process is like this. Okay, must send letters. What will the letters have? Love. So what do I call it? Letters of love. And came up with a Facebook page as shabbily and as quickly. The idea was, okay, really happy picture. will get printed out as a postcard. A really short, sweet message like, Hey, little rock star, I'm looking out for you all the way from Boston in the United States. I can't wait for you to like study and play hard and and come here one day. We could travel the world together. Lots of love, your friend from the other side of the world. Something of that sort. That would get translated to a native language because I realized that, oh, for them to like actually see that someone took the pain to write it in their native language would have been great. And that was the idea. So a simple piece of postcard with doodles and stickers and like nice little post-it note on top that was the whole idea but where do I send it who's going to distribute it I did not have the resources or the answers to that so I articulated a very shabby project proposal I had no idea at the time to how to draft one because I know how to make a computational fluid dynamic model at that point but not a project proposal made one send it out to 536, I really remember that number even today, 536 email IDs that I found by just Google searching the UNHCR offices in Jordan, Lebanon, and Turkey, which is which were the three countries that were maximum, uh, there was maximum influx uh, of refugees at that point. How many responses did I get? Zero, nada. But 
a contacts, contacts, contact had somebody working at the Gaziantep office in Turkey who said, Pooja, wonderful idea, send it through. So I was like, okay, so that's like a full cycle that's established. I can just send them the letters, they'll do the distribution. So the first year in 2015, the 2016 new year, we sent letters to 1,300 Syrian refugee children. At that point, you know, so many people were just like, what is the point of letters? Aren't you making them more upset by showing them something so happy? What difference is a letter really going to make? All of that, all right questions. And I didn't have an answer. I think when I started off, very honestly, also, I started off from a place of, oh, how do I contribute to this so I feel better so that I can go to sleep better? And I really didn't know what children really needed. Mm -hmm. Sent the letters anyway. I was like, let's see. Uh, there was a 2.4 GB of media that came back and they were filled with joy, just children overjoyed getting letters, reading them, talking to each other about their new friend and, and volunteers using those as learning materials. For example, hey, Mohammed, where is your letter from? And it's like, oh, this is from Brisbane, Australia. And then the volunteer goes, do you know where Brisbane, Australia is? Let me show you. Takes out a map. And this is where Brisbane, Australia is. Do you know what people over there look like? Do you know the other cities in Australia? Do you know the oceans surrounding it? And they're like, no, tell us. So it just became like a learning material for them. And it truly just became an incentive to like learn and wonder and be more curious. And that was just amazing. So suddenly... All the gory, distressing images of refugee children that I had seen up until that point, that narrative was shifting into these are children just like any other who deserve to live in a world just like any other child and get an excellent education, healthcare, all of that. So eye-opening, but at that point I was exhausted. No, I blew up all my savings on logistics and I was young and didn't have much and was super tired writing those letters by hand. It was just like a lot. And then I thought it was one of those one-time things that you do, yeah, just to feel good, like a social work project of sorts. But in July 2016, UNHCR gets back with like, hey, you won't believe this, but the kids are asking if their friends will be writing to them again for the coming new year. I was like, okay, their friends will. And they're like, also, a, a few more kids have joined this on our side. Do you mind sending letters to everybody? I'm like, sure, I will. So I'm thinking from 1,300, maybe a 2,000 or a 3,000. But they said that they needed 13,000 letters because Afghan and Iraqi community centers also wanted in because word spread as as to Letters of Love being this one global movement connecting people across borders through letters. And I was like, oh, so this is working. I need to really understand the impact of it. So that's how it kind of like got to the next stage. And all along, while at the same time, I'm a teacher, right, in classrooms. So as I go, if it's like a free period, they're like, oh, they all want to know what the teacher does in a free time. So they're like, oh, ma'am, what do you do on Sundays and stuff? And I'm like, oh, I have this thing called Letters of Love. They're like, what is it about? And I'm like, oh, you know about the Syrian war? And these are like 15-year-olds I'm talking about. And they're like, yeah, we've heard of it. What, what about it? They would just listen to what I had to say. And it's so interesting how kids are just like, okay, this is bad. And now that we know, what can we do about it? And that's when it all struck me. You know, all of us, including us, when we're children, when we're like in kindergarten, who do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a superhero. I want to eradicate homelessness. I want to abolish poverty. Big, big, big ambitions. You fast forward that to, let's say, grade 11 and 12. Hey, who do you want to be? I want to be an investment banker, a doctor, an engineer, a lawyer, 
it's as if the system sucks that very innate change-making attitude in you. So I was like, oh, that is where I want to put in a plug. I want to create an empathy-centric curriculum that uses current affairs. So your Syrian war and refugee crisis, which is just like everywhere around you as a case study to inspire empathy and to actually come up with action plans. Because I honestly think if you don't follow awareness with an action plan, it's just data. Like there's no point in just having data. You have, you need to have a plan. So that was the idea. And then we had educational programs. We started building up that under Letters of Love. And the whole idea was teachers could adopt this 45, 50 minute module to raise awareness and get all the kids to write letters, which will then be actually sent across to refugee kids through our networks. So it was like a full cycle thing. And, and it just kept snowballing from there. Soon in 2017, I go as a counselor to Seeds of Peace. It's a summer camp in Maine. It's, it's 28 year old now. It's a beautiful leadership camp that invites teenagers from conflict countries and explores leadership and dialogue through a traditional summer camp model. So you're essentially eating with, playing with, sleeping in a bunker with, and engaging in very difficult dialogues with the so-called other. So you have Israelis, Palestinians, Jordanians, Egyptians, Indians, Pakistanis, Afghanis, along with Americans and Brits. And it's this beautiful, testing, challenging, but magical space. And over there, of course, they're all such enthusiastic teenagers, especially right out of camp, right? They're all like, oh, the world is one. We have so much work to do. And everyone learned about Letters of Love and they're like, sign us up. So immediately after 2017 summer, I had like groups of young people, counselors and campers included in seven countries. And they were like, we're going to do a lot of things. And, and, and that's the beauty of Letters of Love. It's always been a space which where people just come on and think of it as their own home. It's their own piece of clay to mold. And I always wanted to be a space like that, where you can come with your ideas and the space will provide you resources, skill sets, mentorship, whatever you need to make your idea happen. Never let anybody tell you that you can't work on, a, on your idea because you're young or you don't have money or, you know, many of those things kids are often exposed to and it just kept snowballing from there at this point I couldn't do letters of love and manage like my day job so I quit that I found so much more value in letters it was hard to sort of establish it I have no sense of how to like how to really sort of like incorporate a nonprofit at that time because I didn't know anybody in my ecosystem who did that everybody at that point were doing their masters abroad uh, which was something that I would have done or I would have been a dancer it was also crazy and then 2018 finally I incorporated it out of the states as a 501c3 letters of love is a you know youth-led international nonprofit that provides psychosocial support which basically is emotional support through art dance music and sports and a letter is a happy addition to every single workshop of ours to sort of you know create a kind world for the kids to grow up in and also to sort of cultivate safety around them and truly give them a childhood that they deserve all this while also raising a very empathetic citizenry of young change makers because I mean that's that's the constant feedback loop right like it's not just enough that me and my team are doing this. I need more people to also be able to do that. And that's how Letters of Love is born. And then it's just been Letters of Love and, you know, just a lot of field work, a lot of youth movements, a lot of mobilization, 
we've done educational programs for more than 10,000 students around the world. And this is all teachers coming on board, volunteers coming on board. My youngest, oh, the team is 35 people. It's a party, 35 kids, I would say. I'm the oldest at 28. The average age of the team is 22. My youngest, Gabby, she's from Alaska. She joined me when she was 13. And she single-handedly, yeah, she single-handedly headed the student ambassador program handling 20 other enthusiastic high school leaders and their projects. And uh, she's now 16. It's all so crazy. But yeah, so we have a student ambassador program for young leaders. There are community engagement programs where if you're a company, a corporate, or even just like a society, how do you come together to address a particular conflict in your region locally or even globally? And uh, all through letters, right? It is a beautiful medium of connection. And then my favorite the pen pal project which was quite the logistical nightmare but uh, the idea was to actually connect abc senders abc to receivers xyz and also facilitate a connection back to see where that would lead because i often think that the best way to understand a side of a conflict that you don't know or you're far removed of is to make a friend you make a friend, you naturally have the motivation to empathize. So we, the first year we piloted this project with a bunch of children um, who I take sessions for in Bombay and they write the letters and the letters are sent to internally displaced kids in Syria because we have a chapter there. We literally smuggled the letters in and smuggled them out, imagine. And also in Gaza, 50 kids in Gaza, again, smuggle the letters in, smuggle the letters out. And also to a refugee community center in Turkey. I think that was also in Gaziantep. And then we got the letters back. The whole thing cost us a lot of money, a lot of time. But the results of it, it was just so beautiful to have children really write down and ask, you know, those very basic, simple, but thought-provoking questions, which we as adults often go like, oh yeah, I wish I was a child again. And those connections have been beautiful. Those friendships are still fostering and that's beautiful. So, you know, a bunch of things Letters of Love has been doing. The pandemic hit us all pretty severely, I would say, especially because we're a volunteer-run organization. I think volunteers, volunteers work on that extra energy that you have at the end of the day after you tend to your family and your own personal wants and needs and your work and your pet and whatnot at the end of the day you have that little spark left and you're like oh I want to do good with this I want to sort of sort of shape shift the spark and give it to somebody else in a way with the pandemic what I've noticed is that extra spark has been repurposed into self-preservation or fending for your family hunting for another job because you just got fired from yours or, you know, multiple other things, your mental health, all of it. So there was a steady depletion in that capacity to volunteer. So I put all of us on a wellness break and said, if anyone has capacity, let's just form a smaller team and see what we can do. Because with the pandemic, we also realized that the frontline workers are a growing community that also needed acknowledgement and, and words of love from the rest of the world who were all socially distanced. I mean, what better time would possibly exist for connections to build rather than a socially distanced world? So I thought that was a huge responsibility for Letters of Love. And we actually shape-shifted and delivered letters, and we still do, to more than 10,000 doctors and nurses in five countries. It was, it was just beautiful to see communities just come together safely. Literally, we would sanitize each and every bag. 
the two volunteers who went to like drive and pick these up with a government permit would be dressed in PPEs and we would just go drop letters with the doctors and nurses in various hospitals and the impact is so simple they just feel seen and heard and celebrated and acknowledged and they're grateful that's one good thing in their utterly terrifying lives these days and yeah we're transforming schools in Palestine right now under resourced schools with giant blow ups of the kids that go to the school just to sort of make the environment more conducive to joy and learning so we're doing like a bunch of things at the intersection of well-being learning yeah well-being and learning that's what i would say and the result of that is utter joy and yeah that's pretty much where i am right now fam it's been a few years of my life uh, cut short in a few minutes i love it i mean it's just what a journey that you've had and how it's grown so beautifully or inorganically yeah. is like the most remarkable thing ever so i just commend you for that and just like acting out of love and kind of just doing it even though you're yeah. like i don't know what i'm doing but i'm just going to do it anyway which yeah. takes a lot of heart and a lot of courage you know and like with all that you've experienced and that you know now, like I always ask this question, like what would your older self tell your younger self based on what you know now? Oh, quite the question. I would tell my younger self that Pooja, whatever you're doing right now is amazing. It is valuable. It is important, but it is also just as important to draw healthy boundaries and say stop and rest when you have to i think being in this field it's sort of like my growing edge how to love yourself and take care of yourself just so that you can do the best for the others my mentor he always tells me you have to take care of yourself the most so that you can do the best for the others and that is something that i even tried today i've gotten so much better but back in the day i was sucked into that culture of glorifying working 18 hours nonstop no sundays no holidays you're just working 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 you don't have time for anything and and you think that's a cool thing it's not well i learned it the hard way i had like a sort of like a bad spell into chronic depression and anxiety and you know habits are important lifestyles are so important and self love and self care that is one thing i would tell the younger pooja although i i wonder if she'd listen she's a little stubborn she just does things <laughs> well thank you so much for sharing that cuz i was going to ask of you course. what have been some of your biggest challenges and you know like how did yeah. you overcome them what helped you overcome them because especially as an entrepreneur no matter if it's nonprofit yeah. or really anything when you're heading a big mission especially like yours you know like what you know, there's obviously obstacles, especially in the first few years when you're trying to figure everything out. Mm -hmm. How did you get past that? Because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs listening or somebody who's starting a business or, yeah. or something that is like, okay, how do I get past this block that I'm having right now? Yeah, well, I think for me, I mean, you know, other than the good old classic hurdles of funding and a very rigorous mentor circle, etc. I think, I think I want to focus on mental health because even though there are resources and stories of a greater magnitude than ever existed before now i don't think it is stressed enough i think i was young and you know by i am a bubbly personality that is my personality sure i'm not faking it this is who i am but there is also another side to me which likes the quiet sometimes i just completely shut down and i'm just by myself and that part of me was really 
tapped into when I got diagnosed with depression and anxiety. And I also want to talk a little bit before I actually got diagnosed. You know, I think, and I want to speak for myself. And of course, people who are listening are, you know, free to sort of interpret it the, the way they want to. But I was under the impression that I'm too emotionally intelligent for anybody else. I know what I'm doing. And I, I'm fairly like an emotionally intelligent person, but that sort of overshadowed my judgment when I needed help. I was totally like, oh, I don't need it. I know what a therapist is going to tell me. She or he is going to tell me to do A, B, C, D. Yeah, I know. I'll do it. That went on for a year. And my panic attack became as frequent as three times a week. And I would be traveling here, there, everywhere. I was living out of a suitcase at that point. I was consistently keeping up this image that I have, right? And you're young and you're you just founded a nonprofit. You have to be enterprising all the time. So, you know, you wake me up from sleep too. I'd just be like, oh, hi, my name is Pooja. I'm from Bombay, India. And Letters of Love is a nonprofit. It was just there. The pitch was ready. But uh, I was struggling deep down. I remember mentioning it to my best friend at the time. And they literally thought I was joking. Like they legit thought I was joking because I'm so bubbly and so happy on the outside that, you know, and I would often just like try and do these attention seeking things. That's just a part of my personality. And they thought it was an act. So it took a while for me to like get to the therapist finally. I think the last panic attack I had was I was on a flight from Istanbul to Bombay. My panic attacks manifest in the sense that I lose my senses one after the other. So I stopped hearing at first and that's my first alarm. Oh, I'm going to get an attack now. I then lose my sight. I then lose any sense of touch. And then I just like black out for 15 seconds. And every time I went into that abysmal spiral, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm going to die. And then I was just like, I can't keep living a life like this. And I had friends across three time zones who set alarms in my Indian standard time zone and made sure that I walked into my therapist's door. Like I've literally told them, oh, I have the appointment. Don't worry. And they're like, no, send us screenshots. And I'm like, oh, fine. I actually got one just so that they would shut up. And then they're like, okay, great. This time is your appointment. Set an alarm. Walked me through the door. And uh, it's, you know, I, I love therapy now. I see it in the sense that I, I, I feel so bad that no one told me that it's just like how you go to the gym for your physical body or how you go for a run or a walk just so that your physical body is tended to. Therapy is what you do for your mind. You don't even need to have an illness, but still check in, have a therapist. I definitely would say that to everybody, you're an entrepreneur or not, just do it. It is the healthy thing to do. Just like, you know, like drink lots of water. It's great for your body. Go to therapy. It's amazing for your mind. Friends really help. I think I'm very grateful to have a wonderful family and incredible support systems and also mentors who are just there through and through and through. So I honestly don't think that I would have made it like personally and professionally. And that's the thing with being in the social work sector. There is really no demarcation between the two. You really can't leave your work outside the door and walk in. Like your personal is your professional and vice versa. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that was one challenge. And it was, I was on medication for a while. I remember, I think my Letters of Love team was the first group of people to know that I was on medication and I couldn't work anymore. I needed some time off. And I remember telling them and I was like, hey, like, and because it's a volunteer run organization, I've often had to be at my 400% so that they would show up in their 80, 90%. And I couldn't be that person anymore. And I was like, the space is yours if you want to do anything with it. But for now, I have to step back. 
And I remember when I said that, it opened up such a safe space within Letters of Love that team members started sharing things that they hadn't with anybody else about their own mental health. And that was another big learning for me about how organizations really lack a space to talk about this. If you fracture your any one of your limbs or if you have a splitting headache, you can evidently show those things. You're on crutches, you can hold your head, you have a stomach ache, you can sort of flinch. But with mental health, that's not what people do. So consciously, intentionally create spaces for those. So, you know, it's been a few years. I, I'm off medication, grateful, been doing living a balanced, healthy life. But at the same time, I'm like every month we have like just a sit down where we're like, hey, check in, mental health check in. Where are we on a scale of zero to 10? And then we actually like have a buddy system, follow through. So yeah, those are two things. Mental health, find a therapist, no matter what, to intentionally create spaces to talk about this. Yeah. I love that. Pooja, thank you so much for sharing that because a lot of people don't don't talk about the mental health side of things. Yeah. That's the hardest part, right? Like getting through that, especially in the first few years, not just even in business, but just in life in general and like mm-hmm. being willing to step back. Somebody like me could never think, oh man, Pooja's been through this. You know, some people yeah. could look at me and be like, oh wow, I didn't realize like Pam went through this, but like we're all human. We yeah. all go through things. We all have our limits. Like we're human. We have our stresses. We have our anxieties and everybody has them, you know, and that's so important to know. But what I love about your story too, is that, you know, you being willing to step up and say, Hey, I'm stepping back, you know, open up the space for your team too, I think is really powerful, you know, because then they felt safe to say something yeah. about how they were feeling. Yeah, I think I just want to echo back what you just said, Pam, in the sense that I think vulnerabilities and sort of having them right up on the sleeve is what makes a person strong, if you ask me. Like, Mm -hmm. I want to be able to see how human you are because that's going to be a testament to how incredibly brave, resilient, and, you know, genuine you are. And I would trust that from a business perspective, from a personal perspective, from a professional perspective, you name it, I would trust you. And I think that's so important. Yes. Vulnerability is actually a strength, not a weakness. And that's the society has totally flipped that upside down. But, you know, seeing somebody like you mention it, like, it's just, it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful to show your human side, you know, because that empowers others. It empowers others. Absolutely. Um, And speaking of empowering others, I know you're up to like new missions and new things. Like what's going on in your world in the next months or so? What's going on in Pusha's world? So in Pusha's world, this is quite timely, actually. So the day job that I have, Letters of Love is my passion project, which I spend a few hours on on the weekends. The day job is with Community Arts Network called CAN. It's an organization headquartered in Vienna where uh, we engage, enable, and empower artists, individuals, and organizations working in the arts for social impact sector. So it's sort of like the Tinder for the social impact world, where what do you need? You need scaling, you need funding, you need collaborators, whoever you need. There is a tech-backed platform that will give you that within the network. So we've been working on it for a year. Uh, It's done some amazing things with TED, with Carnegie Hall, and all of it. And I'm super stoked heading the launch of the advocacy communications person and This is a combined effort from two foundations who never had a communications person before in 160 years of philanthropic work. 
So I just have a lot of stories to say through Cat. So that is one thing that's happening. Letters of Love is slowly sort of getting back, getting a new rhythm along with the new normal. As I mentioned earlier, we're transforming schools now to more pleasant, conducive to learning environment under resource schools in refugee hotspots. That's another thing. These are the two things that work really. I really want to make sure Community Arts Network blooms because I... Coming from a very grassroots level, I know the value of connecting somebody with a need with somebody else who can provide for it. It is the most beautiful, magical thing. And to be able to work for an organization that does that as a founding principle is great. These two things, but Pooja also wants to go on a vacation so badly and just wants to you know, like see people do normal things and go on about their lives, which sounds like such a far-fetched dream from where I sit now. But, you know, we'll get there. Yeah, on the way, we just keep doing good things that benefit yourself and others and life's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that's coming after COVID dies down and things settle down for good. I think that yeah. that's when the vacation, everything will be ready for you. For sure. I just love all the initiatives and everything that you're doing and like just the empowerment space. It's such a gift and I can't wait to see what you do in the next you, in the ma'am. next year or so. And now everyone needs to know where to find you and your awesomeness. Okay. Well, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram. It's just pooja.pradeep, P-O-O-J-A dot P-R-A-D-E-P. I think I'm the most active on Instagram because, you know, that's where the fun kids are at. But anyway, it's just like a much more easy chatty space. Please feel free to reach out to me, especially with letters. As you can probably tell, I love them. So yeah, that's that. I love it so much. You are so fabulous. And I just want to thank you so much for being here today, Pooja. I appreciate you and and continue to light up the world the way that you are. And I can't wait to see you again soon. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift and join us on the next episode.